Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to let you in on a little pastor secret. Pastors don't really like preaching on 1 Corinthians 13. You think, what? What are you talking about? This beautiful chapter of the Bible, it's all about love and the love that people have. It's so nice and wonderful. It just, it just gives me the warm fuzzies, Pastor. How could you not love preaching on it? See, this is just the problem. It's not the text itself, much less is it love. The problem is the ways that we in our culture tend to read into that text a certain definition and understanding of love. See, this chapter is so often read at weddings and people will hear it and they'll think, oh, isn't this just so sweet? This couple, they love each other so much. I can feel it in the air. I just want to throw up in my mouth a little bit. <laughs> All right, no, I'm overstating the case before you think I'm some kind of heartless pastor. No, I love love as much as the rest of us, but it's important for us to understand that when the scriptures talk about love, especially 1 Corinthians 13, it has a very different meaning than the, what our world typically means when it talks about love. So what I want to do this morning is to contrast this biblical teaching of love, God's love, versus the way that our world tends to understand love. And my goal for this isn't just that we would have a better understanding ourselves of what love is, but look, if we're not able to grasp what the scriptures really mean when they talk about love, how are we going to faithfully mirror that love to one another? We need to see what God's love, the love that the scriptures teach, what that's really like if we're going to be able to share and show that love with others. So let's think of some of those contrasts. The first contrast I want to make between biblical love, God's love, and the way that our world tends to talk about love has to do with grammar, okay? What I mean is this, that biblical love is primarily a verb. And the way that our world tends to talk about love, it's primarily a noun. There's a guy by the name of Bob Goff. He describes himself as a recovering lawyer. Okay? For no offense to you lawyers in the congregation this morning. But he wrote a book, and the title of it really grabbed my attention. It's entitled, Love Does. Love Does. And what he's trying to, to draw out is that love is not so much something that we have the way that you have a cold. By the way, if you do, just kind of sit away from the rest of us. Or the way that you have a grudge. It's the way that the world tends to think about it. Love is a noun. It's a feeling. It's an emotion. It's just something that you possess. But Bob Goff points out, no, 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 no. Love is primarily an action it's a verb. Love does. And you couldn't see this anywhere more clearly than in our reading today from 1 Corinthians 13. There's this great passage, this tour de force in the middle. In three verses, three or four verses, Paul has actually 15 verbs. 15 verbs in a row. But it's interesting, as I was looking at different translations of this, it so often gets it wrong. Now, I want to read two different translations of these verses for you. Just bear with me for a second. The first one is from the New Living Translation. 
Now listen to how noun-heavy this is. Love is patient and kind, or maybe adjective-heavy. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It doesn't rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Okay, that's all right as far as it goes. It's still a beautiful sentiment there. But listen to the, what is this, the New King James and how it captures this verbal nature of love. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself and is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely, doesn't seek its own, is not provoked. It thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Can I get an amen? Love is not just a feeling. It's not just an emotion. It's not primarily a noun that you have. It's a verb. It's an action. And this is just the way that our Lord loves you and me. Not simply as a good sentiment that he might have toward us. He loves through concrete action. We heard it even in our gospel today. People are, are bringing the sick and the infirm to him. And he doesn't just say, oh, I love you so much. He shows that love by healing them, by restoring them, by casting out demons. He shows his love by laying down his life for you and me. His love, the love of our Lord, is not primarily an attitude, although it is that. Even more so, it is an action. It's not sappy sentimentalism. It is selfless sacrifice. It's a verb. Which brings me to the second contrast I want to make. This first one is that biblical love, God's love, is a verb. And the way that we usually talk about love is a noun or maybe an adjective. But what is the nature of this verb? What does this action look like? From God's perspective, the scriptural love is selfless sacrifice. Whereas the way the world typically thinks of it, it's a very self-interested thing indeed. I had this realization and thought recently during all of our cold days and wintry days, Anne and the boys were out, and so it was just Beatrice and I. Ellie was taking a nap, and so I said, Beatrice, you can watch any movie you want to watch. And so, of course, she chose Frozen. <laughs> <clears throat> Those of you who are not currently hanging out with small children, maybe you don't understand. Frozen, we've seen it about 100 times. And in case you don't, the, the storyline of Frozen, well, the key thing is that um, Princess Anna finds herself through a series of unfortunate events with a frozen heart. In fact, her sister Elsa has frozen her heart. It's turning to ice. And if her heart totally turns to ice, Elsa is just going to be a, a human icicle, okay, which is bad news. So how do you reverse a human icicle? They go and they, they find the wise trolls and the troll tells them what you need is an act of true love. You need an act of true love. And they all say, great, okay, we just need to find Anna's boyfriend, Prince Hans of the Southern Isles, and she'll get her true love's kiss. Hmm. 
an act of true love. Now here's where I want to pause the movie and say to Beatrice, look, Beatrice, this is just a problem, see? <laughs> this is the way that the world is always talking about love. Inasmuch as it's a verb or an action at all, it focuses just on that, that kind of love, that ooey-gooey love. Oh, it's a kiss. Isn't that sweet? Or more than that, right? The way that our world tends to think of love is what the scriptures are, in Greek language was called eros. It might sound familiar. Eros is that sense of uh, sensuality, of physical intimacy. There's nothing wrong with it in itself, but it tends to be very self-interested, focusing on one's own pleasure. That's the way our world looks at love, and so we're watching Frozen. I'm saying to Beatrice, see, this is just the problem, and Beatrice is saying, can we just watch the movie? But here's where it really surprised me, see. As the movie goes on, and here's a spoiler alert, but if you haven't seen it by now, I mean seriously. Uh, Anna doesn't get that true love's kiss, but instead her sister Elsa is about to be stabbed, and Anna steps in front and sacrifices herself, gives her own life for her sister, and boom, just like that, the curse is reversed, the frozen hearts thaw out, and now that act of true love, it wasn't just a kiss, it was sacrifice. I thought, this isn't such a bad movie after all. <laughs> but I tell you that, see, I tell you that because this is the biblical view of love, agape, which can best be understood as this selfless, sacrificial love. It's an action, it's a verb, and specifically, it's how you lay down your life for others. The way that our Lord laid down his life for you and me. And I'll just say, as I see our congregation, I see this kind of love enacted every single day. The love that a, a spouse has for a, another aging spouse, caring for them, or taking care of your parents as they're getting older. It's the love that a parent has for her children, even when they might be acting up. <laughs> it's the love that we have for the less fortunate, for those in need, for those who are going through difficult times. It's sacrificial and it's selfless. And that's what resonates and echoes with the love of our Lord, who loved and loves you and me, not because we were so worthy, but because his heart is set on you. And that brings me to the final contrast I want to make between this biblical love and the, the love that our way our world tends to talk about. See, the way that our world tends to talk about love is it's based on attraction. You find one that you're attracted to and you fall in love with them. God's love is based on creation. Now, what do I mean by that? Martin Luther once said this, sinners aren't loved by God because they're attractive. They are attractive to God because they're loved. Let me say that again. Sinners aren't loved by God because they're attractive. They are attractive to God because they're loved. In other words, God's love creates the object of his affection. He doesn't go around looking for somebody who's especially handsome, especially beautiful, especially virtuous, and saying, oh, here's one that I can get along with. He looks for sinners like you and me, 
for those of us with empty hearts and empty hands so that he can fill us with the fullness of his compassion and grace. His love is creative and not simply attractive. I heard this beautiful story on the radio and I thought, when I heard it, I thought, yes, this is what God's love is like. It's about a, a young man, a boy, Daniel. He was seven years old. And Daniel did not know what love was. He's an orphan in Romania. At seven years old, he has spent his entire life in a crib. And not only that, he shares the crib with another kid. He doesn't even know that he has a birthday. He doesn't know that he has been born. He doesn't have the first inkling of what love would even be. But this couple from the States, Heidi and, and Rick, they adopt him. And they just want to pour upon him, show him what love truly is. But he doesn't know what it is. And he can't help but interpret everything through a lens of, of hatred and anger and hostility. And so even though they love him, even though these adoptive parents love little Daniel, he keeps acting out, thrashing out toward him. He especially shows hatred toward his adoptive mother, Heidi. He's going after, after her continually. Once he punches her in the face, gives her a black eye, and then smiles. Another time, he holds a knife to her throat, and the police had to be called. This kid didn't know what love was. And so when he saw it, he didn't know what to do with it, except to respond with hatred and anger. Well, the parents are just resolute in their care for this child. Everybody's telling them this is crazy. Get rid of him. What, you, you could lose your life trying to take care of this boy. It's a few years later now. But instead, they decide this radical therapy measure. They're going to do something where now, not only are they not going to cast him away, but Heidi and Rick had to be with their son, Daniel, within three feet of him at all times, except for going to the bathroom. For an entire year, every single night, Heidi would sit on the couch with her 13-year-old adoptive son, Daniel, who's now like a big boy, on her lap, and she had to look him in the eyes and feed him ice cream. Okay. Now, after days of this, weeks of this, months of this, finally, one day, the light bulb goes off in Daniel's mind. This boy who has never known what love is, doesn't even know what to make of it, but suddenly it dawns on him. Wait a second. All I have ever given to this woman is hatred. And she's responded to it with, with hugs. All I have ever tried to do is to injure her, and all that she has ever tried to do is to show me compassion and forgiveness. And so, while that ice cream is coming into his mouth for about the hundredth time, he says, ha, ah, you love me. And she says, yes. Not because he was so lovable, see, but simply as that creative kind of love. Now, if that can be true for people and all of our weakness and our frailty and our sinfulness, how much more is it true for the love of our Lord? who finds you and me and bestows his love on us, gives himself for us, not because we were so attractive to him, but simply because he has set his heart on us. Look, the world 
might continue to do, it will continue to do its romantic comedies with its cheesy understandings of what love is. They'll continue to write their top 40 songs about love. For my money, my song is love unknown. Just like the hymn says, my song is love unknown. My Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? That's the love that our Savior has for you and for me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. That's true love, friends. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.